This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Coming up on Stew Does America, Attack of the Karens. When is it okay to berate your fellow human beings about their coronavirus safety standards other than never? We'll figure that out. We learn how to cut people's hair during a pandemic and how to cook for people if they happen to be an evil dictator. Finding every episode of the show is easy on YouTube. Just search for Stu. I'll be the first one there. Please subscribe and click the bell to get alerts when we post new material. And if you're listening on podcasts, please subscribe, rate, and review. Doing so helps us in our battle against the algorithm police. Doing all this stuff is a free way to help the show. And five out of five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Remember that. And we have all the shows on The Blaze available anytime at blazetv.com slash stew. Make sure to use the code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 10 bucks. By the way, we have another unearthed video of a celebrity in blackface for you today. Now they're qualified to run Virginia or maybe even Canada. Stew does America. Welcome to the United States of America. Mm. Did you know that it's your patriotic duty to search out behavior you don't agree with and report it to the proper authorities? Did someone go outside without authorization? Did someone's kid use the slide at a local playground? Did you not have friends growing up? Then you too can be a Karen. You can uh, become an Instagram tattletale and draw attention to yourself as a way to illustrate your superiority. By the way, if you have, uh, if you're kind of gone through this whole thing like me and you have no idea where the Karen thing came from, because I didn't, it seems like it goes back uh, to part of a Dane Cook comedy set from the mid 2000s, but it's gained popularity lately to criticize a stereotypical suburban mom who's yelling at someone else for not adhering to her vision of the coronavirus safety rules. So why the name Karen? Well, it seems like the meat of it is just that Karen is apparently a typical white person's name. In the interest of racial equality, go ahead and choose a name that you think aptly summarizes a different race. Go ahead. Just do that now in your head. Not out loud. In your head. Got one? Okay. Now feel free to use that name as a pejorative in a public sphere to describe a member of that race who is doing something that you don't like. What could possibly go wrong with that idea? Seems like it'll work. Just wait until you see media members all over America embrace your vision of the stereotypical African-American or Asian-American or Mexican-American. No matter what race you choose and what name you choose to stereotype it, everyone will love and repeat your joke because of racial equality. (laughs) Isn't it a wonderful country? Anyway, it was Memorial Day weekend, and that led to tons of stereotypical Karen-based shaming of people who wanted to celebrate the start of summer. There you go. A zillion people in a pool. No social distancing going on. I mean, it looks awful. 
And I mean, it looks awful for a million reasons, completely disconnected to the virus. All I see are way too many mostly naked people packed into the same body of water. You think those people are nine beers into the afternoon and still making it out to the bathroom every time? I doubt it. I wouldn't go into that pool if it cured COVID-19. Also, quick note on the coverage. Here's how ABC framed it. Ozark Lake weekend partygoers asked to self-quarantine. What's the subtitle? <laughs> Missouri saw a 7.9% jump in COVID-19 cases over one week. Once again, the media is tying an increase in COVID cases to an event long before any effect could possibly be detected. What does a 7.9% increase have to do with what happened here? It could lead to an outbreak, but it definitely hasn't yet. In fact, there hasn't been an increase at all in the daily caseload in Missouri. Despite a slight increase in testing, the daily caseload has actually been decreasing from about 300 a day down uh, to last week where they didn't even have one day over 200. It's all about using the numbers to paint the narrative. They call it a 7.9% increase, but new cases actually dropped last week from 1,200 to 1,071. That's an 11% decrease. This means they are moving in the right direction, but ABC goes out of their way to give readers the opposite impression. Why do they do this? Not to mention, they are outside, in the sun, in a body of chlorinated water. The chances of passing this along in that environment are incredibly low. In a Chinese study of 318 outbreaks, only one originated outside. That doesn't mean keeping your distance from drunks that are definitely peeing in the water is a bad idea. It's a very good idea. Even if you don't care and don't catch a COVID-19 at all, you're definitely bathing in urine, so stop doing it. Because that's much worse than COVID-19. Totally separate problem, though, and not covered by ABC News. I wonder why. Anyway, there's a uh, woman in a grocery store also being shamed and berated with a constant stream of expletives because she wasn't wearing a mask in New York. If you're listening on podcasts, there isn't like an EKG machine. They're just swearing a lot. Look, if if masks are required by a private owner of a store, that's up to them. If you want to shop there, you should respect their rules. But treating someone like this is insane. Masks do seem to help the spread of uh, viruses slow down generally, which is no surprise. Two parties wearing masks are better than one. But even one mask can lower the chances of transmission pretty significantly. One thing that we know raises the chances of, of uh, transmission significantly is loud talking. Like screaming at someone for not wearing a mask. Recent study estimates that a single minute of loud talking can generate 1,000 virus-containing droplets, and some people who spit a lot when they speak can go up to 100,000 droplets per minute. This isn't sneezing. This is talking. The study says the droplets stay airborne for as long as 14 minutes, and again, the study found it was much worse indoors in confined areas. Yes, the fact that they were wearing masks might help those numbers, but the Karens yelling at the woman without a mask were almost definitely causing more danger than the woman without the mask at all. Not to mention, they all looked insane. Then you have the Karen shaming media. 
Ah, the tradition of finding youngsters at a park and making them feel bad for being outside. I know I love it. I'm sure you do, too. This example comes from Canada, but I had to include it because of the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end. I feel as if masks are not 100% important. Um, I feel as if, if you want to... Sorry to interrupt. A spontaneous kiss from someone that she doesn't know. (laughs) Oh my God. No, I met him for a second with my dog. That's insane. Are you all right? (laughs) Yeah, he's so hot. Having met just minutes earlier, Jillian McCowan says she's okay with the kiss. Text me! We asked Jack Ring, the man who initiated the kiss, if he's aware of all the risks of kissing a person you don't know during a pandemic. Do you worry about possibly either of you having that, contracting, passing it, anything? Oh, uh, not, not if you just said it right now, but yeah, I probably do right now. But I think the kiss is worth it. <laughs> the best part of the entire video is when she's laughing. You're like, I can't believe it. <laughs> she actually snorts. She's so excited. First of all, the report intends on shaming these people because they're randomly kissing strangers in the middle of a pandemic. And again, I get it. But do we just switch off courtship until we have a vaccine? Is that is that our plan here? How long do you have to date a person from six feet away until you're free and clear of the media's Karen shaming? I don't know what the number is, but that's not the twist. The television station wound up apologizing for the report. Did they apologize for their shaming or for their virtue signaling? Oh, no. A follow-up on a story that aired last night on CTV News at 11.30. In a story on social distancing, we included an interview with a woman in a park. During the interview, a stranger came up to the woman and kissed her directly on the lips. Our story then focused on the dangers of kissing a stranger on the lips during a pandemic. It was wrong to air this video. The video demonstrated non-consensual behavior and downplayed the fact that what occurred was simply unacceptable and offensive. It does not meet CTV News editorial standards, and we apologize. (laughs) Got it? They apologize because they found the kiss a little too rapey. Mm. It was a non-consensual kiss, even though the woman was clearly excited about receiving it to the point of snorting. And she says she liked it because he was hot and asked him to text her afterwards. It was still somehow non-consensual. I guess next time we'll have to get a notarized permission form, maybe? I, I don't know where we go with this. You're taking away her ability to consent. You're taking away her agency to make her own decisions. This isn't pro-woman. It's completely insane. One of the secondary effects of this pandemic is it seems to give people a free pass to be miserable jerks. It's like a hall pass to be judgmental and scold anyone who doesn't hit your standard of behavior. Look, I've never randomly kissed someone during an interview. I have no desire to get in a giant vat of PP water. I don't mind wearing a mask indoors, honestly, particularly because it usually means I don't have to talk to anyone. I actually like it. But you can disapprove of how another human being is acting and still act like a human being. It's a crazy idea. You can't berate someone into agreeing with you. It just doesn't work, whether your name is Karen or not. I'm not sure what Karen's going to say about you buying Black Rifle Coffee. They, I, they're a little aggressive. Rifles? That's a scary gun. Did you know that? 
Mm. But I still think you deserve the best beans from around the world, delivered right to your door. I mean, we're in the middle of a, a you know, we're just starting to get out the, uh, the out of the doors now and go out and peek our head out of the door a little bit and drive around and do things again. But, uh, you know, cut corners with some other stuff. You deserve the best coffee you can get. Now's the time to, uh, you know, to make sure that you're not settling for some crappy grocery store brand just because you're allowed to go to the grocery store all of a sudden. Black Rifle Coffee Company was built for a time just like this. They were shipping their coffee to you when COVID-19 was just the dream in the eye of a pangolin in a Wuhan wet market. That's not exactly... It's not exactly their slogan, but I'm starting to adopt it. Veteran-owned and operated premium small batch roast-to-order coffee company, Black Rifle Coffee, imports only the highest quality beans from around the world, and it's always fresh. Why? Because they roast their coffees to order for you. It's also a great gift for Father's Day, which is coming up. Sign your dad up for the Black Rifle Coffee Club. You choose the amount and the blends that you want. They have the grounds, the whole beans. They have those handy-dandy little round things for your machine, whatever those things are called. You'll get a discount on the price, and they ship it directly to your home or your office. Hey, you're going back to the office pretty soon, maybe? It's completely, why not? You know, I mean, get it shipped free. Uh, to your office, come back to some great Black Rifle Coffee. Go to blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. Blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. Make sure to enter the discount code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. And because they're awesome, they're going to give you 20% off your first order of any coffee product. It's blackriflecoffee.com slash stew. Shelly Luther had a mortgage to pay, but no one could get their hair done. Can't get any perms when the entire nation is quarantined. It's a tough thing. Uh, we had to give ourselves haircuts, which is not pretty. Uh, and for Shelly, I have to imagine if you own a salon and you're seeing all this happen across the country, that's a huge disaster <laughs> watching people try to cut their own hair. Uh, like the millions of Americans who uh, found themselves without income as a result of COVID-19, Shelly felt hopeless, but then acted on that feeling, took action. As a result, she was arrested and sentenced to seven days in jail. Shelly might be the most famous salon owner of all time. I can say with confidence that you already know who she is. She's emerged as an unexpected activist, instrumental in an ongoing debate about what to do with our country. Shelly Luther joins us here. Shelly, thanks for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. So how is business right now for you? It's great, actually. Um, we've had people flying from all over the United States to get a haircut you know, from our salon, even though other ones are open, just to prove a point. Yeah, that's, that's been really a cool part of it. I know you've had a bunch of famous faces in there. Um, it, it, what was it like going through this when you're, you know, you're, you're taken to jail for this, you know, opening up a business that you own, this ridiculous world we live in? Uh, but, you know, the governor is out there saying this should stop and then you're released from, from jail. What was it like going through that, that, those circumstances? I mean, it was like living my day, my life hour by hour. It was just surreal, not knowing what could happen and just kind of expecting the worst. Um, the way that judge was acting, I kind of knew I was going to jail that day. So, um, but after that, getting out of jail, everything, every, every minute has been something new. So it's crazy. When the governor comes out and releases the statement that he wants you to be released, I mean, really, he passes an executive order or gives an executive order basically on your behalf. I mean, he certainly covered other people as well, but was very much uh, focused on on your story that has to be a just a weird thing to go through as a business owner who's not trying to make some big name for herself just trying to do what she thinks is right right i opened the business just um wanting to help the hairstylists 
and didn't think it was that big a deal at the time until the news cameras started showing up. <laughs> and um, I didn't really, even after day one opening, didn't realize that I was the first or one of the first businesses that opened and said, I'm not gonna shut my doors. So everything's been crazy. You know, uh, Shelly, one of the things I think has been really impressive about you, and I don't mean to just be complimentary here, but is the way you've handled this. Um, you know, when you came out and all this was going on, you made you, at least to my eye, made really a public uh, statement about doing everything the right way, making sure that you did, you know, you were wearing masks in, 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 uh, when you were doing this, when you had social distancing, you, you took every precaution, you explained in detail all the different ways you were disinfecting um, the, uh, the, the, the salon to make sure that this went well, right? Like it was a really important part of it. I've noticed over the past, I don't know, week or two, that there's been some people who have kind of gone away from that a little bit and started looking at this as almost like, you know, if you're wearing a mask, you're giving in to the man. If you're if you're not social, if you're social distancing, then you're you're kind of you're, you're showing weakness in some way. Do you agree with that or what, it, it, have we come past the point where we need to deal with all those restrictions? How do you see that? I mean, obviously, I'm not a scientist, but even the scientists have been wrong and they keep changing what they say. Sure. Um, when it came to opening my business, I did not want to give them any reason not to open the business. I wanted to show them that Americans could be responsible enough to take care of ourselves and others. And if people wanted to come get their haircut, that our place was safe. And so uh, are you still doing it the same way or have you have you updated that since you, you first opened? No, we have not changed at all because I know that a lot of people don't want to wear a mask and things like that, but I still feel like people are looking at our salon as sort of an example. And there are a lot of states that aren't open yet. So if they do look at our salon and say, oh, well, they're not even wearing masks anymore, I don't want to be blamed or um, even be the reason why people could possibly get sick because we are still unsure of how this virus is even passed. Mm, I, I think that's really smart. I think because that, that is part of it, right? Because, um, you know, that it's 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 one thing to get your salon open, which I know is really important to you. But as this gets into a bigger thing, it's also mm -hmm. about sort of the public facing image of this to making sure that, you know, we on the side of wanting to open these things up don't look like we're out of control or reckless or causing problems. Is that a, is that a big piece of the formula? Um, I think everything's a big piece of the formula. Of course, I have a lot of critics as well, and they're looking for me to fail. And I'm just not going to give them the, the opportunity to, you know, they, they're already picking on a lot of things like my family and my personal life and everything else. So I'm not going to let them use the salon as something to attack me with. So we want to protect as many people as we can. Yeah. Uh, and you've taken, I think, great pains to make sure that that's happened. It's been it's been a joy to watch, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh Talk to me about this. This has been a, um, a uh, some on the left and some uh, in the media are pointing to a couple of other situations completely unrelated to your salon and completely unrelated to the state where, you know, one barber did come down with COVID-19 that opened early. I don't know the entire situation there. There's another, I think it's a great clips or whatever in Missouri that a couple of people who were there had some issues and uh, worked with symptoms for a week. They think 150 people may have been exposed. That doesn't mean that they're sick, but it, they could have been exposed to it. This is such a fine line for people to, to, to walk because we all want this to be open. We all want this to go well. 
Is it is it a situation where keeping those safety precautions at the highest level for as long as, as you absolutely need to to assure people, hey, it's OK to come back out and do these things because, you know, we're taking every precaution that we can. What's the messaging there? How do you get people to to because I know your people know your salon. Now, as you say, people are flying in from all around the country, but that's not the case with every salon. They're trying to convince regular people just to come back out of their house. How do you do that? Yeah, we traveled to Michigan to see uh, Carl Menke, that barber that's having some issues with the governor there. Mm. Um, and Michigan is is almost like a different planet compared to Texas. We've all kind of, you know, taken a deep breath. And I, it might be because I opened up and, and a lot of people in Texas opened up because of our salon. Um, but Texas, to me, didn't even really shut down. Like Walmart was packed. Target was packed. Lowe's Home Depot packed even during the stay at home order, Mm -hmm. like because Texas considered, you know, uh, painting their house essential. So we never I never really looked around in Texas and said, oh, the streets are bare. They weren't. Um, And we have still continued to keep the death rate very low for the huge population that we have in Texas. So I would love for people to kind of get out of their basement and instead of watching, you know, a certain news channel or listening to a certain person really um, study what's going on around them and, and talk to real people that can tell you what's going on. And there's not you know, we don't have hospitals full of people just dying all over the place. That's not the case. Hmm. Um, the media has also, as you mentioned, kind of come after you and tried to pick apart your story in any way possible, because this is, of course, their function in our, in our society for whatever reason. Um, one of the things they've come after you on is this is GoFundMe page that was started for you. My understanding, though, is that you're giving a lot of this money away that's come in. And, you, and as far as I understand, you've closed down uh, the, uh, the amount of donations that are coming in. You could, be filling this, you could be filling this thing up. I don't know why you just don't go for it. If it was me, I would have absolutely no scruples here. Um, Honestly, um, when it reached a half a million, we thought we needed to close it because it was getting to where it was a lot. It was already a lot to deal with. But when I was in jail and it hit a half a million, it that was just completely unbelievable. So, um, yes, we are. um, And let me just tell tell people this. The money was given to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, use as you please. People even wrote letters in saying, thank you for being a patriot, sending me money. Um, and I want people to understand if I wanted to keep this money and go buy a Bentley, I could. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my money. They gave it to me. I choose to, I chose to start a charitable organization um, to give back you know, that blessing that I received because I don't want people to go through the same thing I did. So I started a charity called Courage to Stand at CourageToStand.com. And I put a huge uh, portion of the money that I was given into that. Um, And then we are still taking donations on that because I want to be able to stand with people that are trying to open their business in some of these um, states where they're still shut down. And and, in in California, who knows when they'll even open back up. So I want to be able to travel, be their voice, um, give them money for their fines or legal fees to help, you know, help the the country get back to where it needs to be economically. I think that's a really great focus. And it's turning it into something positive, even though you had to go through uh, quite a time there. Um, Before you go, I do want to ask your professional opinion on something here. Um, You took a stand in in a very brave way. Um, I, uh, in a moment of weakness, also took a stand and, and went on Amazon and bought the AirCut. Now, the AirCut is a device 
uh, that looks like a hair dryer. However, it sucks your hair in and cuts it like a Floby. I never, I haven't actually used it. I, I got a little scared, but I mean, professionally, how do you view this particular uh, model? Okay, I will say, because I've been, um, I, I've never used that. I've never seen anyone use that in person, <laughs> um, but I would recommend, there are hairstylists for a reason and they are trained and paid for a reason. So I would definitely go that route if you can. I was thinking if we had a listener who is in quarantine still and could not get to your salon or anyone else's, I think we at least give him a shot and then we can watch them attempt to do it at, just for entertainment purposes. I think it would be fun to, to watch. This is making you cry. I can see it in your eyes. You do it. Try it. Try it right now. Let's see live. Oh, it's not plugged in, unfortunately. I don't, uh, we, we, we're out of time here, Shelly. Uh, thank you for coming on the program. Uh, Shelly Luther, salon, salon owner, of course, uh, here in Dallas uh, and uh, the founder of Courage to Stand, a great new charitable organization that's uh, fighting for our rights to open up the businesses we own. What a shocking uh, thing to do. Shelly, so, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. All right. Back in a second. Congratulations, everyone. We found another celebrity in blackface. It's, it's all happening, and it's great news. Now, this one's in particular, I, I find this one a, a little interesting. Given the network that it happened on, uh, here is, back in the day, Jimmy Fallon. Watch. Rock, now we're talking. Where is he? Man, oh man, read this book. <laughs> I've seen who wants to be a millionaire, and guess what? Not a lot of black folks on the show. Right. <laughs> Not a lot of black folks on the show. You know why? Because black folks don't like to answer questions. <laughs> oh, they want to be millionaires, but you got to ask that kind of question. Like, in 1981, how many grams of crack did Rick James smoke when he recorded Super Freak? <laughs> Regis, you think the only way to get a brother on the show is to name it, who wants $50 cash and a pair of Pumas? <laughs> I mean, people are making a big deal about the blackface thing, which, again... How how do these things keep turning up? I don't I don't understand it. Uh, but the joke, I think, was basically to get black people on the show. He had to make the question about crack. Say uh, questionable, questionable line of a uh, of humor. But hey, look, you know, I, you want to be a risky comedian. You can do that. Uh, I, I find it incredibly interesting that Megan Kelly was fired from NBC because she uh, asked a question about blackface where here is a situation where they're just, he's using it. And this is like their highest profile guy. Again, I don't have anything against Jimmy Fallon. Honestly, do I think Jimmy Fallon is a racist? No, I don't. Uh, I don't think he is. Uh, and you know, his, his Chris Rock impression of his voice is actually pretty solid on that. It's just like this, this culture that we live in. I don't know that there's room for people to understand anything, any nuance or anything. They're trying to get him fired for this. I don't think it will happen. But who knows? In this society, I wouldn't be shocked. Um, I am shocked occasionally by things, including this report about Georgia. Uh, NBC Nightly News, not exactly known for their responsible treatment of the coronavirus situation, decided to revisit their coverage from earlier on this year about Georgia when it was reopening. And I want to I want to focus I want to focus you on one little thing here. It's good that they came out and said, hey, uh, a couple of months ago, we were telling you everyone was going to die in Georgia because they opened up salons and people aren't dying in Georgia. That's the tone of the report generally. But I, I've, I've given you this little piece of it because this is the part where they try to highlight some of the criticism. And if you remember from back in the day, every single host on MSNBC was saying 
you know, it was irresponsible. Everyone was going to die in Georgia. If you, you know, anybody on the left was saying this, if you remember famously, the Atlantic had a headline, Georgia's experiment in human sacrifice. Okay. That was the headline. That was the tone of the coverage. They wanted to highlight one example of criticism of Georgia and they were able to find one. Guess which one they found. Last month, Georgia was one of the first states to reopen and with the most aggressive approach, allowing barbershops, restaurants, tattoo parlors and more to welcome customers. The criticism came in droves. I told the governor very simply that I disagree with his decision, <laughs> but he has to do what he thinks is right. They couldn't find any of the criticism on their own networks about this. They had to go to the one statement that Donald Trump meant or uh, that uh, one statement he made that was critical of the Georgia governor for not opening, but for opening particular items like uh, tattoo parlors and salons. Uh, they, they found their criticism. Donald Trump was the one critical. So they, the only reason I feel like they did this was they were actually able to prove Donald Trump wrong in a roundabout sort of way. And that makes it worth it. Uh, this clip is absolutely unbelievable from MSNBC, uh, by the way, in this complete MSNBC section of the show. Um, this is a clip of anchor, of course, outside with a mask. Absolutely no science behind, behind the outside with a mask thing. There's just nothing there. There's no science, no reason to believe outside in this sort of environment you need to be wearing it. And uh, the protesters were noticing what was going on. Listen very closely. I'll give you the, the play-by-play here uh, if you can't hear it, but listen very closely. So are the people there just not worried about it, Cal? Are they not worried about their own personal safety? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. I haven't met anybody who is. I met some folks actually from Lake Geneva who live in the area. They were staying a few miles outside of town where I were. And they said they're worried about it. They're worried about that second spike. They're worried about folks coming in from Chicago. But they'll quickly add at the same time, this is a place that relies on that business. I think people here want a little bit more funding when it comes to these programs so that they could stay closed. But again, I think people felt like the Supreme Court made the decision here in Wisconsin that it was time to open up. But you can see here, just around. Nobody's wearing them. Nobody's. Uh, the there you go, including the cameraman. Yeah. Katie. <laughs> Striking images. Cal Perry. Okay, Cal, so thank you very you hear much. It. He and says, yeah, no one's even wearing them. Goes to this guy. The guy says, yeah, including your cameraman isn't wearing a mask. And he says, half your crew isn't wearing them either. Just caught in the act, as usual. Back in a second. If you're like me, you haven't been able to figure out what to do with all that extra time that you used to spend at the gym. That's me. You know, I've been uh, basically eating terribly uh, since the beginning of COVID-19. Put on eh, more pounds than I'd like to admit. However, Fast Blast is getting me back in shape. I already dropped a few. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this because, you know, I like the way that it works. If you are a person who struggles with these sort of diets where they're like, oh, well, you'll cut a couple of eat three less radishes per day and you'll, you'll lose weight over a year. I can't do that sort of thing. I need to have results. I need to have it now. Um, that's one great uh, part about Fast Blast is it happens fast. If you've never tried intermittent fasting, you know, fasting sounds like super difficult. It's really not, especially when you get the rhythm with it. Uh, Fast Blast can walk you through exactly how to do it. It increases your metabolism. Uh, you know, some other diets screw with your metabolism in ways that you don't want. They, they've got this down. The Fast Blast smoothie makes it really easy. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it can be harder to do without it, but with the Fast Blast smoothie, uh, it's, it's super easy. They come in a convenient and easy to use squeezable pouch. None of the nonsense. Be smart. Do your own homework. Make sure it's right for you. But go to fastblast.com slash blaze. And uh, this, remember, the slash blaze part is always important because that's how they know you like this stupid show. Uh, get started with Fast Blast. Healthier, 
happier and smaller you. It's fastblast.com slash blaze. Polish journalist Witold Szablowski is here to talk about his uh, latest book, uh, How to Feed a Dictator, Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Enver Hosha, uh, Fidel Castro, and Pol Pot through the eyes of their cooks. What a great idea for a book. He interviewed the uh, chefs of five of the most brutal dictators of our time and revealed the inner workings of their dictatorships in a way you've never heard before. For example, some people thought, you know, Saddam Hussein, actually a decent boss. Who would have thought? Paid his staff well, handed out gold watches like they were glazed donuts. Apparently, he could be a little temperamental at times. Who knew? Uh, How to Feed a Dictator is a really a fascinating idea, and it's like, kind of like chicken soup for the soul, except with vicious, bloodthirsty dictators. Because let's be honest, you want to know if Bill Clinton liked cod? Uh, who cares about that? I want to know if Pol Pot enjoyed eating Cobra Heart. It is unfortunately not true, I think. Um, uh, let's bring Vitold in. Vitold, he didn't actually eat Cobra Heart. Is, is that unfortunately not true? Yeah, unfortunately, it's not true. Hello, Stu. Thank you for having me. And... Uh... Well, that was what I thought about Pol Pot. It's it's quite a Pol Potish story to hear about a man who's having a heart of cobra every dinner. And I, when I went to Cambodia to interview his personal chef, Mrs. Yang Muen, I thought exactly this way about Pol Pot. He's probably the man that was eating cobra every day. <laughs> but when I was uh, when I when I came to Cambodia and finally met Mrs. Yang Muen, who, was, who had been cooking for Pol Pot for over 30 years every day, I was quite disappointed to hear that actually his food was very simple and not very different to what average people eat. It's really a fascinating idea for a book. I mean, you went around all over the world to track down these people who... I saw the inner workings of these dictatorships that we've read so much about from a completely different side. What did you take? What was the biggest takeaway, do you think, from from talking to these people who had such a unique experience? First of all, it was very it was extremely hard to find them. Mm. And the extreme case of that was the chef of Saddam Hussein, who had been hiding since American troops or the coalition troops came to Iraq. Mm. And, you know, if he thought he might be taken to Guantanamo, he might be tortured, he might be executed. And he, he just he just chose to, to hide. And he didn't want to change that. Like, he didn't dream about a Polish journalist <laughs> coming to and ask for an interview with him. So it took me almost three years, firstly, to find the guy. And then another couple of months to make him talk with me because... Again, even when I finally found him, he didn't want to talk. He he just he wanted to keep to keep hiding. So that was extremely hard. And the second very hard task was to listen to their stories, because when you know what who Pol Pot was, when you know what Khmer Rouge did to Cambodia, and then you meet Pol Pot's personal chef, telling telling you, telling me. What a great man he was, telling me what what a dreamer, what a fascinating personality, what a handsome man he mm. was. It's extremely hard to listen to all of that. Did you find that to be a repeating uh, story here and that there was a, a pretty sympathetic view of their former boss from the chefs? Well, they... Some of them, yes. Some of them, they, you know, time... 
time gives you a distance. Mm -hmm. And that's, for example, the case of Abu Ali, the chef of Saddam Hussein. He was quite skeptical about what Saddam did. Like he wasn't skeptical about Saddam giving him gifts because he, he, get a, he got a golden Rolex mm -hmm. for a good soup. But he was skeptical for Saddam as a politician. But there were cases like the chef of uh, Pol Pot, Mrs. Yang Muen, who was in love with him. Like she felt, she had felt in love with Pol Pot as a teenage girl, and she's in love with him until today. Wow, that's really fascinating. And to to hear these stories, I mean, because they have, you really feature a lot of really specific uh, stories that that fill in a lot of the color of what was going on behind the scenes. You, you spoke about Saddam Hussein uh, and, and his chef in particular. There's a point where. The, he, the chef thinks that he's being poisoned. I think I have the story right. The chef thinks that he's getting poisoned by Saddam Hussein. Can you tell us the story? It's, it's fascinating. It's, it's certainly not the story that I... I didn't think it was going to end this way when it started. Well, it starts like... A, it's a beautiful day, and it's, it's a sunny uh, day, and the chef mentions that that was times when we had no war which is quite an unusual thing for people in Iraq. Mm. And he was telling me the story that uh, the, the day was nice and Saddam invited some of his friends for a boat trip on the Tiger River. And then who could expect that in that beautiful sunny day, the chef would almost get killed not once, but twice. The first time was because Saddam wanted to cook for his friends and for, for his personnel. And Saddam was a horrible chef. Like Saddam didn't know how to cook, but unfortunately he loved cooking. And uh, poor people who had to eat what he cooked, he was a horrible chef. Mm. So, but Abu Ali, his personal chef, prepared everything for the meal that Saddam wanted to do. The meal was kofte which are kind of meatballs, Iraqi meatballs. And uh, it was waiting. And then one of the bodyguards of Saddam came with a plate and he said to Abu Ali, look, Abu Ali, Saddam cooked also for you. And he was like, wow, this is so nice of president. I'm so happy and say, say my thank you, etc." But then he tried the food and and his throat uh, became uh, aching, not really aching, like he thought he's dying. Mm. He tried the food and he thought the food was poisoned. And he was sure that for some reason, Saddam had him executed. But then after a couple of minutes, he realized that actually he's not being poisoned, that the problem is with the food. And then he told me he learned what the Tabasco sauce is. <laughs> because they, he had never tried that before. And Saddam also didn't know that, but Saddam didn't like the spicy food. So he made a joke for his personnel and he put a bottle of Tabasco sauce to the food that he prepared for all the people. And, you know, and all the people on the boat, including his personnel, but also including his friends, including his wife, they all thought that Saddam had poisoned them. And then Abu Ali made a mistake because when the bodyguard came to ask how was how the food was, he told he told the truth. Mm. And you know you are working on a, with a dictator, and the, probably the last thing you should do is telling the truth. But he said that, that the food was horrible, and the bodyguard 
went to Saddam and said, Abu Ali said, your food was horrible. <laughs> and, you know, you couldn't criticize Saddam Hussein. Nobody could do that. N neither his wife, nor his ministers, nor his advisors, and especially not the cook. So he was in big, big troubles. Luckily, he survived that day. But, um, but in, he could be killed twice in that beautiful, sunny uh, river, Tiger River boat trip. Mm, I'm surprised you were able to find him at all after, after speaking up to Saddam Hussein like that. Um, one interesting thing that you, you, you kind of, because we always think about the dictators and when, when we go through these types of stories, and it's interesting to think about the people around him and their perspective of this. For, you know, The Last King of Scotland was a movie that was out and it kind of told the story, uh, somewhat fictionalized, of a, a doctor that, that worked with Idi Amin. And if you kind of look at it from the other side here, you have chefs who have a passion for their entire career to rise to the top of the culinary arts and do all these amazing things. And then they realize that now they're stuck in a job where they're serving a dictator who might be murdering people and was probably blowing up at them all the time. I know that there's tons of stories of, of them in danger. And what was it like for them to kind of have their career and life turned upside down by these events? Well, good, good example of that is the chef, again, the chef of Saddam Hussein, Mr. Abu Ali, who never dreamt about working for a president and he never thought he might end up like that. Mm. Like his, his career dream or his, uh, his professional dream was to cook in a five stars hotel. And he was driving his plow or he, he was just trying to, to get to the five stars hotel. He never thought about anything else. And all the steps he was making as a cook were going to the five-star hotel. And then suddenly he ended up in, in a place he didn't apply for. Like cooking for a dictator is not a job you can really apply for. Mm -hmm. Like there, is, there, is, there were never a job announcement saying, oh, we have uh, uh, the supreme leader is looking for a chef. And... Um, these people usually they have completely different professional dreams, but a, a chain of accidents brought them to that place. And very often they weren't quite not happy about the place they found themselves in. And for example, the chef of Idi Amin, Idi Amin was a dictator of Uganda, and his chef was actually actually one of the best chefs of the whole Africa those days. But he never thought he would end up like he was happy enough to cook for white people when he was a young teenage boy. It was really it was a great career. He was from a poor village in Kenya. Mm. And and suddenly he, he was cooking for white people. White people trusted him. And that was something in the colonial era, which luckily is has passed away. Sure. But that was really that was dream career for the for the young man and he, he would never think that one day he could be cooking for a president and when he started cooking for the president he would never think that this job might be a nightmare for him one day and it was he ended up almost executed and uh, and he's very lucky that he survived this in in this job
Mm. The, the the book is it's a great it's a really interesting way to look at this. It's, it's a great book. It's out now. Um, you can pick it up. Uh, we have it's uh, how to feed a dictator. Saddam Hussein, Idi Amin, Enver Hocha, Fidel Castro, and Pol Pot through the eyes of their cooks. It's available wherever you get books. Also, I recommend too Dancing Bears: True Stories of People Nostalgic for Life Under Tyranny. Just I, you know, it's just, you're looking at the world in a, in a, in, from a totally different perspective than so many people. And we really appreciate the hard work that you're doing going around the world to do that. Vitold, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for having me. All right. We're back in a second. We'd love to have you subscribe at blazetv.com slash stew. Use the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show. But, you know, look, times are tough. If you don't have the cash for it, totally cool. Do some of the free stuff to help us if you can. Subscribe at YouTube or rate and review the podcast. We'd really appreciate it. See you tomorrow.